Chai mi kunang Dios mata manya kuni hang kunata tiningwan kuida sunaiki chispa. Amen. Why didn't I hear any amen there? <laughs> that's, that's the way many, many Quechua people, millions of them, for decades, heard God's word in Spanish for them. That was Quechua. <laughs> and uh, the second language that we, that we finished uh, on December 24th of last year. But to have that much access to God's word doesn't allow you to grow very well, <laughs> does it? when you hear it in a language that you don't really understand. I'd like to um, share a bit, but first I'd like to ask for the Lord's help. Father, I do thank you for the privilege that you've given to us to spend so many years in your word and with people applying your word to their lives and our own life. Thank you that it's a light unto our path, you know. Thank you that you guide us through it. And we pray for those 1,170 some languages that still have no word of your, your holy Bible in them, in their tongue. We pray that you would send forth harvesters into your harvest, that they might also hear your words of life. I ask for your guidance today, Lord, that you'd open our hearts and open my mouth to be able to communicate helpful things from you and from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first of all, thank you, thank you, thank you. I said this in the first hour, that you all, even though you didn't know us, the newer folks, have been the pillar, the main pillar of our ministry in, in terms of financial help. Um, I don't think we could have done everything without it. And God knew that. We didn't expect it. We didn't ask for it. We didn't share needs with you. We just let you know 50 years ago almost. <laughs> Um, 49 years ago, what the Lord had called us to, and you responded. And it was interesting that in, in 1973, when we, we came to church and joined church in 1972, in 1973, when we went to Peru, you were our uh, great support then, and you just got bigger. We didn't ask, and you just kept taking care of us. So I just want to thank you for that for making all of, of our work possible through your generous, generous gifts. And um, also, we, we thank the Lord for the privilege of being youth pastors here for a couple of years. When we were kicked out of Peru by a military dictatorship, uh, and I was here doing my doctoral studies at, at Wayne State, you became our, our deeply home church more than even before when we were newlyweds. And we were able to connect with some of the grandmothers out there who were at that time in 10th grade <laughs> in, our, in our high school youth group. So it tells you a little bit about our, our ages <laughs> and the fact that you're celebrating probably this next year, your 50th, 75th, 75th anniversary as a church body. And, and you sent us out on, around your 25th anniversary. So we've been together uh, at the, the, the 40th, I remember real well, <laughs> with, with Carl Landreth, our founding pastor, still with us. Um, the, what I'd like to, to ask you all is, how safe do you feel in the modern world? 
And uh, as the bulletin says, I'd like to entitle this meditation, The Safest Place to Be in an Unsafe World. And you can just think really fast about why this isn't a particularly safe place to live these days. We just now passed a million people dying from COVID in the United States. We are watching the atrocities in the Ukraine. And we're, we're listening to the threats of nuclear war that could reach us with devastating effect. Uh, we're living in a time when terrorists around the world are striving every day to get at us. <laughs> and we've had some events. And even in the last, what, two days, we've had mass shootings in our country. Um, we had a murder rate that kicked up 44% in just two years, uh, 2020 to 2021. Um, so there's some people in the world, the worldly ones, who would say, if you aren't anxious and depressed, and maybe even paranoid, you just don't know what's going on around you. And we can say as followers of Christ, actually you can know all those things and you can still be filled with joy. When you think about the early followers of Christ, they lived in a Roman empire that crucified Peter upside down, that beheaded the apostle Paul. And yet you read their writings and they're filled with joy. <laughs> they're filled with peace in the midst of that kind of of challenge and threat. And you think about many countries in the world right today, and I try to pray for those every day. You think of North Korea. You think of Afghanistan, now that the Taliban has taken over. You think of Pakistan. You think of Eritrea, um, Sudan. I can just go through the list. And those people face more threat than the early Christians did from the Roman Empire. And yet they live peaceful, joyful, godly lives in the midst of that and being an example to us. Um, I would just like to say that they have found the secret <laughs> of joy and peace in the midst of threat, in the midst of risk and, and a lack of safety. And that is that to be in the center of God's will is the safest place to be no matter where you are, no matter what your circumstances are, if you know you're doing what God wants you to do and you're learning to be what he wants you to be, then in an eternal sense, you are safe. Safe in the arms of Jesus. <laughs> it doesn't matter, as Paul said, you know, to die is gain. Don't worry about those who can just kill the body. <laughs> Think about God. He has you eternally in his, his grasp. And I, I would like to say that um, I learned about grace and forgiveness 68 years ago when I was eight years old. And I understood it and decided to act on it just down Allen Road, a little over a mile, maybe two miles in the basement of Reverend Earl Gilmore's house. I don't know if any of you remember Earl Gilmore, who, uh, who was a pastor here in the Downriver area. And he, he basically taught children the gospel. And he got 
uh, you know, classes to be let out of school. Uh, back then you could do that during the school day and, and would teach the gospel to us. He helped me understand. And after I gave my life to the Lord, well, I knew I needed help. I knew I needed forgiveness. You think, what can you do when you're eight years old that you feel so guilty? Well, you can ask these two guys there in the second row. <laughs> Those are my much younger brothers. And I was the oldest of five boys, and I was a very, very harsh oldest brother. And, um, and that lasted for way too long. So I asked the Lord for forgiveness, and I felt cleansed. I felt clean. I remember the day after making that decision, going outside just filled with joy and seeing the sun as brighter, the trees as greener, the flowers as more beautiful than they were the day before I gave the Lord my life for salvation. But as an eight-year-old, I was mainly interested in being forgiven and, and escaping hell. I didn't fully comprehend that this involves a little more than just a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, and it wasn't until I was 12 that another evangelist challenged us to total commitment to Christ and, and that it might cost you everything. And, and at that point, I remember saying, okay, Lord, I'll try. I'll let you be my master. I'll let you be my Lord, even if it means becoming a missionary. But please don't let that happen. <laughs> don't pray like that. It gets you into trouble. <laughs> um, and I can't say that everything went hunky-dory after that. I still backslid into bad attitudes, and, and uh, you can ask them. It wasn't until I went to college I actually cared about my brother's well-being, and I came home from college and wanted to help him out. And they, what's he up to? What's, what's he trying to con us with? <laughs> you know, they, they couldn't believe I actually cared for them and wanted their well-being instead of just my selfish own. But um, what I wanted to say is, we have deep truths that can be communicated to children who are eight or 10 or 12. And they're deep things. And I don't know if you know who Karl Barth was, but at, his, at the time he was asked this question, he was close to retirement. He was probably the most respected theologian in the secular world. He was neo-Orthodox. He wasn't what we would call 100% evangelical. But he had an unusually high view of scripture for that time and place as a theologian. And they said, Dr. Bart, what is the most important thing you learned through philosophy, theology, and your study of the Bible in all of the original languages that you, that you control? And he answered, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's what moves us, that's what motivates us. The love of Christ for us that we can share with others and say, no, you're not lost. You're not in the midst of, of no meaning or horrible meaning of your life. Jesus loves you, this we know, because the Bible tells us so. And that was put to music, you know. Um, there's just a lot of deep, deep, basic spiritual truth that we learned in song as little children. And um, we, I see a few kids here. You probably don't even know these songs because I'm so old. But I bet you the grandparents here could sing them with me because they were kids once too, if, even though it's hard to believe. Um, let's try one like this. Um, 
trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It's not hard to understand, is it? Is it very hard to do? When things are going exploding around you, why isn't it easy to just trust and obey? That's a question that we should address. Um, how about trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Be not wise in your own eyes, serve the Lord and turn from evil. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. Wouldn't that be nice in life, to know that God himself was directing your path? And all you have to do is find out how to listen, and it might take a while. I had a long, hard path before I ended up in Peru. But I can tell you about that a little later. Um, I think that if we can just, I'll, I'll share one other thing. In, after we finished the Bible on the 24th, we were seeking what God wanted for us, maybe retirement. And, and our, um, our Wycliffe administrators said, Dave, have we got the mission for you? And I said, okay, what? And they said, you could mentor the best translator on your committee so he could do your job. And it's a three-year program so that you help him to become a, a translation mentor to teams of translators. I said, well, that sounds cool. And it's sure. Yeah, I prayed about it first, though I did. I, but it just, it just, just boing, you know, this is what God made me for. He, this is what I spent 50 years learning. Now I can pour that into a very, very wonderful uh, pastor. He's about 38 years old. He's a neat, neat guy. Um, anyway, uh, then they said, oh, by the way, um, you'll have to be the responsible consultant in charge of this lang new language until he's approved in the three years. <laughs> so it's a three-year mentorship program. And in the meantime, I'm, I'm also responsible, bottom line, for what happens in a new language. It's the closely related to the one we just finished in, on December 24th. I thought, hmm, let me think about that. <laughs> That's a little bit bigger job than just mentoring one guy. That's being responsible to read all the scriptures of this and make sure that they're doing it right and all that until he can take over in, in three years. So I did, and I just felt rejuvenated. Heidi said it looked like I'd been taking one of those Jarrett, what is it? Geritol. <laughs> you know? It was like, wow, I get to do this, you know? <laughs> I'm, I'm young again. I'm starting over. Uh, it's 1973. <laughs> but um, the Lord has just really blessed. I've been able to... Um, spend time with him, spend time with the new committee, uh, work together with them, uh, you know, and on, online, and see them progress. Like Heidi said in the first hour, I think it was, they got through Genesis, and they're doing a good job, and they're about a third of the way through Exodus already, ever since February 1st. So we're learning as we go that the Quechua people do very best in sort of on-the-job training rather than abstract classrooms. And so 
I'll talk about a concept and we'll study one basic translation principle from a little book called Translation Problems or Challenges from A to Z. And so then we, we also find problems when they're trying to translate difficult passages and I say, oh, this is problem N <laughs> in, pro in translation problems from A to Z. And we look at that and we apply it. And so as we, as we work, we, we learn together. And um, our faith, when we find the right place to serve God, it just becomes a source of joy for us. I, I would say that it also has to be nurtured by prayer and fellowship, and that's what this is all about. I'd just like to urge you to not just come to church on Sunday, but get in a small group, get in a Bible study, you know, find a, a place where face-to-face -face you can grow together with other brothers and sisters in the faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And when we see other people having access to that Word, it really covers a multitude of sins in our life if we can help them. And, and I found that God called me through a, a man, a medical doctor who was serving with Wycliffe, and he said, Dave, you're going to get a graduate degree in, in cultural anthropology. That would be a wonderful background to be a Bible translator. And I said to him, I don't like languages and I don't like linguistics. I like anthropology. You know, I like people, but not uh, analyzing all these language things. I said, I took, I took Latin and I wrote in my Latin book, Latin is a language as dead as it could be. First it killed the Romans, and now it's killing me. <laughs> and, and, I, and I did not think that up myself. I, I saw it, and it rang true. <laughs> so I put it in, my, in my, my Latin book. And so I thought, how could I spend my life in languages when I, I mean, you know, I, I'm not good at this. I, I mean, I got a B out of the class, and I was a normally an A, a student or so. But, um, I had to work really hard to get a B. And so I said, okay, tell you what, I will go to the first summer of training because God had gotten a hold of my heart. The word had become alive to me. I was in the, the Jesus movement uh, with those, Jimmy as well, my, and Pete uh, at, at the beginning too, as a 14-year-old, I believe, maybe 13. And, and I saw God's word just blossom in my life and the life of those around me. And I led Bible studies. We ended up having a home Bible study that became a, a, a storefront church that became a ministry that has supported us as long as you guys have, <laughs> you know, um, but not nearly as much because it was small. But the point is that, that the God's word became so important, I couldn't imagine going through life without it. And then this, this medical doctor from Wycliffe said, yeah, how would you like it if there was nothing written in your language that said the message of John 3.16? If you couldn't hear that in your own language. And I thought, man, I couldn't stand that. How can I look and see around the world thousands of language groups with no access to God's word? I'll bite the bullet. I'll go, I'll study for a summer. I'll see if I can stand it <laughs> for the sake of the word, for the sake of being able to learn how to translate into their language. So I went 
and the rest is history. I thought, man, it's hard, but I can do this. I can learn a language if I'm surrounded by it, if people are talking it to me every day. It's not like sitting in Latin class trying to learn from a book. You know, it's, it's totally different. And the Lord has, has blessed. He's helped Heidi and me to learn uh, several languages that were related, like Spanish and, and Italian would be, for instance, the same family, but not understandable to each other. So when I first started as a kid, I lived um, until I was six on the Grosseal Naval Air Station barracks apartments in those. And on Grosseal, on the base, there was a terrorist. His name was Donnie Ramsey, and he was eight years old. And he and his gang terrorized my, my friend Russell, who was six, and me, who was five. And we learned every cubbyhole to hide through those barracks and around the base because they could run faster than we could be in eight, ten, you know, yeah, eight and nine years old. And if we could get home, we were safe. If we could find our hiding places, we were safe. But one of the best places to reach was our hero, Big Jim. <laughs> Big Jim was 12. And, and he was tough. And he could, he could thrash Dan, you know, the whole gang. Donnie Ramsey, he would just fling those, those eight and nine-year-olds around like they were you know, sacks of potatoes. And once he had one experience of that, and we watched rejoicing, um, they never came back after us when we were with him. And for those of you who've been in Sunday school, I'd like to ask you, who do you think is an even better protector than Big Jim? And if you've been in Sunday school, you know the right answer. What is it? Jesus! Right? He's usually the answer. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I think about that in the light of a dangerous world. And Donnie Ramsey and his gang were the dangerous world for us. Um, some of my earliest memories are not only of him, but of World War II fighter planes taken off from the, the you know, the Naval Air Station in Grosseal. Um, the, the thought when we think of Jesus as the big Jim writ much larger in our lives is that nothing can reach us without going through him first. You think about that. You know, he, he permits hard things sometimes. He permits evil never causes it, never wants it, but allows it so that he can find the harvest of faith which is more precious than gold to him. That in the midst of the dangers, we can learn to trust. And you think about the examples of Joseph in Egypt, Daniel in Babylon, and the lion's den you think about the horrible death, but the, also the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And God allowed all of those things to happen ultimately for his glory. He, he, he gained great glory out of what his people suffered. Even Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. That's what the scripture tells us. Hard to believe. But that's, um, that's what our faith means to him. 
And I think if, if, we're, if we realize honestly and wisely how messed up we are, sometimes it's hard to believe that God can love us that much. <laughs> but he really does. And he, and he doesn't love us anymore as we get holier. He's happier when we get holier. But he loves us the same. He loves us unconditionally. And I keep forgetting that. But I, there's a quote that I have from, uh, well, both Max Lucado and um, another guy that I'd like to read to you. Um, Max says, God loves you just the way you are. But he loves you so much that he refuses to leave you the way you are. He wants you to grow to be just like Jesus. And that takes harsh lessons sometimes as part of the, the discipleship, the discipline of growing in the Lord. The other thing is um, that you know, hard times and, and how Christians go through hard times is probably the most powerful witness that there is. When, when worldlings see Christians going through things they could never, never handle, and do so with the power of God in their lives. It's a wonderful testimony to the world around us. Um, I was thinking about the five missionaries who died when I was a kid uh, in Ecuador. And uh, I followed them um, over, not the, only the five missionaries, but you know, their wives who, and sister who, who went to minister to the Alcas, who are now called Warani. And, how they said later, we never could understand why those five men didn't defend themselves. They had at least one gun, and we speared them all to death, and they never defended themselves. And then we came to understand through the wife, Elizabeth Elliot, and the sister, that they loved us more than life, and they didn't want to hurt us. They would rather be harmed themselves than to harm us. And, and those kinds of witnesses for God, those martyrs, they knew that living in the center of God's will for them was safer than any place else. Whether they lived or died, they were eternally safe in God. They knew that those Aukas, if they died, would not be safe <laughs> in God. You know, they would be condemning them by using their weapons, their, their modern weapons. And so, because of all of that, I ask myself and I ask each of you, what keeps us from being 100% sold out to the Lord to do anything he wants us to do, even if he calls you to be a missionary? And I'll, I'll give you some of my problems and challenges. I think we basically think we know more than God about what will make us happy. <laughs> we think, you know, I want to do this and this and this, and now God's asking me to go over that way. That can't be the right place to be. <laughs> this is where I want to be. I want, I want, I planned to. And um, I planned to be a wildlife managing game biologist. I went to the University of Michigan and for two years, I studied wildlife management and, and, and biology. And then God said, yeah, but I like my creation. It's beautiful. But, and I see every sparrow that falls, but I died for people. 
And, and I want you to think about that. And so I switched from biology to anthropology and I studied cross-cultural societies and ministry um, and went to Wheaton College instead of the University of Michigan. I didn't think I'd get a, much of a missionary training program at the U of M. I remember five classes in a row one day, they, they bashed the Bible, <laughs> for instance. But so I gave up that dream. I also wanted to be like Robinson Crusoe, but instead of having a man Friday, I wanted a beautiful babe with me and you know, wherever the, uh, uh, Robinson Crusoe ended up. And, and when I gave up all of that natural beauty dream, the Lord sent me to southern Mexico to the jungles of Chiapas to learn how to live in rustic places. And guess who was going through the same program with me? <laughs> She's sitting back there in the third row. So I got my, my man Friday, and we dated in the jungles of southern Mexico. <laughs> we went on a 35-mile hike together in one day, if you try over two mountain ridges. And the girls got to ride mules. I, said, I, still, I still hold that against Heidi, that when she got too tired, she got to mount the mule. And we, the guys, we had to tough it out the whole way. We started at four in the morning to, in order to get all the way through it by nightfall. Anyway, we, we got back what, what I had thought I had given up. And then the Lord led us to some of the most beautiful high mountain places in Peru, in the high Andes. And we always ended up, we never planned it this way, but we always ended up living right on the edge of a village or a town where you could go up into the mountains easily from our house and take an afternoon hike after work every evening. You know, it was like the Lord just giving me back what I thought I had, had lost. I loved motorcycles, even though my brothers had 650 Triumphs. And uh, they, they had uh, thumping, boom, 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 when they, and I had a, a little two-cycle Japanese, you know, but, <laughs> but it was still fast, and it had a great power-to-weight ratio, I want you to know. And, and so, I mean, I longed, I loved being a, kind of a brother of the wind, you know what I'm saying, dude, you know. And, uh, and the Lord asked me to give that up. Okay, and we got to Peru, and we found out we needed to do language survey all over the mountains, and we needed to use mules and horses and a little Honda trail bike, a Honda 90. And it had eight gears, and it could climb a wall. It was slow but powerful, you know. And Heidi and I went some places where no motorized vehicles had gone before. And, and rode horse trails, and that bike was so light you could push it over things that you couldn't ride over. And I, I will ask her to testify that I never dumped her once, thanks to, <laughs> thanks to the experience of, of you know, riding in the States. So the Lord gave me back the motorcycle in spades. Um, I used to sing in a couple of Christian bands, and I thought I was giving that up. And the Lord gave me one of the most satisfying experiences of my life when I helped the Cajamarca Quechua people develop their own musical worship style. We had, I took some course, course in ethnomusicology, the study of other musical systems, and, and I was able to help bring musicians and theologians and writers together, and we wrote a, a hymn book over time 
that we started with 19 hymns and choruses and we ended up with 179 that they could praise God with in their own language and in their own five-tone pentatonic style. And, and so, I mean, that was so satisfying. I, I never would have guessed that would be one of the things that he would do. And we went through this military dictatorship that was anti-American. And we went one time when we were first there to see a movie, Tora, Tora, Tora. You ever hear that? It's, it's the attack on Pearl Harbor. And we're sitting in the balcony and they're machine gunning the American sailors at Pearl Harbor. And the crowd in Peru started to cheer. I don't know if you can imagine how that would make you feel if you're watching people being surprise attacked and machine gunned and all around you people are applauding. But that told me what the military dictatorship had done to American image in Peru at the time. And then we were kicked out, you know, by that government for being American spies and, and it was just all lies. But um, I won't go into the details. The thing about it was that in 1976, I thought we'd never be able to go back to Peru because we had been kicked out by the government. And by 1978, the prime minister who had kicked us out was kicked out of the country. It was kind of like Haman and Mordecai. You know, you build the gallows and you end up on it yourself. And we were invited back and we were able to go back and work in Peru. The Lord brought us through all of that. And then, finally, um, the Shining Path Maoist terrorists were tearing up the country and they were moving north. We lived in the north. They had taken over the south and the countryside and the military from the government had pulled back into the cities and at that point, right above our city, in bright flames, was next year in Cajamarca. And that was written by the Shining Path saying, we're coming. They were five hours drive short, south of us and they were coming north. And then we started having threats and bomb threats and one of my friends owned a print shop and because he didn't print their stuff, they blew it up in our city. You know, it's about a quarter of a mile from where we lived. And then in the village, there was a, note, a letter pushed under the door of the municipal offices, and it went through the list of all of the abusive and corrupt officials and what would happen to them. And it ended with, and death to the Yankees. And I'd always hated Yankees because I grew up in Detroit and I watched the Tigers. And, but this was a different, this different kind of Yankee. This, that, this was the Americans, and the only Americans were our two families, my brother Tom's and ours. So we were death to us, you know, death to the Coombses, basically. And so we had to do what our mission had taught us. It's called target hardening. And we only had one road in and out of the village, and it was a rough, rough road. Um, but we could vary our time, and we could keep our families safer by putting them in the cities. So only my brother and I alternated. Tom would go out, I would go out. And we'd work on the translation with the people who couldn't leave their fields and homes. And one day, Tom just missed an attack on a bunch of trucks that were leaving the market from, from our little village. And they stopped and they taxed everybody for the cause, for the revolution. 
And he just missed it by an hour or so. He came an hour later and the police had come and they were trying to figure out where they, the terrorists had gone, uh, what routes they'd taken. So we just thank the Lord that not only did he protect us, both of us, through those threats, but the, that very next year, they captured the head of Shining Path and they found in his office videos of him at celebrations with all of his top officials. And so the government just rolled up the whole head of the Shining Path guerrilla movement. They, they arrested all of them. And it was all set up in cells. I won't go into the details, but it was like they cut the head off and the cells didn't have any connections. They were all connected through the top and down. And, and so the threat went away almost overnight. Once they captured the head and then all of his lieutenants, it just... 90% less activity from them. They were so weakened. They haven't been a, a serious threat since. So all I'm saying in this is the Lord will stretch us. We'll be uncomfortable sometimes. We'll say, I can't do that. That's not my gift. And I would just challenge you to take a chance that the Lord might be right. I, I went from saying, and now it's killing me. <laughs> To, to studying multiple languages and being able to work in them. And that's because God knew more than I knew about what would be satisfying and give joy and, and which would help the kingdom of God expand to those who really, really needed his word in their language. Would you come and pray? Dave, just